Dr. Alice Petropoulos collaborated with Drs. Cynthia Matosian, Greg J. Berdy, Ranjan P. Malhatra, and Richard Potvin on a study titled The Effect of Tear Osmolarity on Repeatability of Keratometry for Cataract Surgery Planning. Listen in as Alice shares a perspective on this study and the impact that osmolarity has on planning cataract surgery and on dry eye patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Whitney Hauser, and welcome to Dry Eye Coach Podcast. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Alice Petropoulos, who's in private practice at the Eye Center in Columbus, Ohio, and is on faculty at The Ohio State University. Welcome, Dr. Petropoulos. How are you this morning? Thank you, Whitney. I'm doing great, and thank you very much for uh, inviting me today. Yeah, absolutely. Today, we're going to be discussing tear osmolarity and a study that you did uh, not too, too long ago about planning cataract surgery and the impact that osmolarity has on that and on your dry patients. And I'm really kind of interested in this. It was my favorite study of uh, 2015. Is that correct? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And I often, I often quoted it as my favorite study, and it just kind of says exactly how nerdy I am that I have a favorite study <laughs> every year. But that was my favorite study that year because it was an aha moment for me personally. I worked in a cataract practice for uh, the first decade of my career, and I remember looking back on a lot of patients and thinking, why – is this such a refractive surprise? Why, you know, we did everything right. You start pouring over the chart, looking at all the biometry, yeah. looking at so many different things and going, why, is, why did it turn out like this? And when I read your study, I thought, aha, now I get it. So yes. go ahead. And, you know, say? Well, I, I, I think that we've come to realize that there's such a high percentage of our cataract patients that are affected by dry eye. You know, we, we've seen from the FACO study that Bill Trattler did that a majority of patients presenting for cataract surgery uh, were diagnosed with dry eye disease. In fact, 77% uh, of, of their patients had corneal staining, and two-thirds of patients had an abnormal tear breakup time. And then this was confirmed with Priya Gupta's study uh, that had similar results with 80% of patients presenting uh, having at least one abnormal tear test. So we know that how common it is, um, and we also know how dry eye can really affect our K measurements uh, that we take prior to cataract surgery. And K values are a significant factor in our IOL power calculations. Um, and, you know, not all patients presenting for cataract surgery don't verbalize uh, that they have dry eye symptoms. So this really points to the need for objective testing uh, for dry eye at the, at the time of cataract surgery, including point-of-care tests such as tear osmolarity and inflammadry. Because, you know, again, it's not uncommon for patients to come in not complaining of dry eye, but we notice significant dry eye at the time of the exam. So why did you decide to study osmolarity and its relationship to, to keratometry readings? Because, you know, whether you're in ophthalmology and you're looking at biometry or you're mm -hmm. in optometry and looking at, you know, contact lens fits or what have you, it, there's the relevance to keratometry. What made you really dig deeper into that? Well, you know, I think that, um, you know, tear osmolarity is a um, very helpful, very accurate measurement for evaluating dry eye disease. Uh, severity and therapeutic response. So, you know, again, um, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, you can't 
just rely on whether patients have symptoms to, you know, determine if they have dry eye disease. So this is an excellent objective test that really points to uh, whether they have dry eye disease. So again, I, you know, we, we have, we use pure osmolarity in all our cataract evaluation patients. And uh, sometimes it's actually surprising to see, you know, the patients are asymptomatic and they have an uh, abnormal tear osmolarity and you look really closely, you do see, you know, an abnormal tear breakup time or you see, you know, some uh, mild uh, superficial punctate keratitis. And, you know, those are the patients that really can affect the accuracy of your IOL power calculations. Right. You know, I think a lot of practices in automated testing in general, whether it's, you know, using a, a Pentacam or you're using um, uh, keratometry readings otherwise, a lot of these pieces of equipment have a bottle of artificial tears sitting right next to them so that the mm-hmm. technician can get a reading, but it's not necessarily right. going to be the most accurate reading. Is that fair mm-hmm. to say? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, I mean, I think that um, I, you know, I think that if you detect somebody that has signs of dry eye disease, you can't just put an artificial tear and expect you to get accurate readings. It's something that you right. have, to, you have right. to treat the underlying condition exactly. Yeah, that incomplete data that you get on a map like that is really, you know, is the patient telling you in not so many words, right. I have problems yeah. with dryness. This is something that needs to be investigated further. So right. how is Keratometry measured. You know what what devices are used and, and technology. Yeah, so keratometers or you know topographers simulating K readings measure the front surface of the uh, cornea, um, but gives the total corneal power on on the assumption uh, given that the above that the back surface of the cornea um, has ten percent of the power. So you know again. You know, the keratometer device that measures the curvature of the anterior corneal surface is based on the power of the reflecting surface. So if that reflecting surface is not healthy, um, then, then you can really um, have um, unreliable K readings, um, and there's more likelihood of error. Um, so, you know, again, when manual keratometry was the gold standard, um, using skill and experience were very important. So if I wasn't taking measurements myself, I wasn't always sure um, of the quality and accuracy. So measuring keratometry with optical biometers, you know, found with the Iowa Master and the LensStar has really revolutionized the ability uh, to more accurately measure uh, corneal power. In fact, this technology has become the new gold standard for measuring uh, keratometry. Um, today's biometry devices really serve as um, serve our patients better because I think that uh, we're really seeing that more and more of our patients are coming in with, you know, previous refractive surgery, and we know that, um, you know, we know how important, uh, you know, those accurate Ks are uh, to getting uh, good results. Right. Yeah, manual keratometry is definitely a dying art. I don't know mm-hmm. that, that many you know, optometry students and ophthalmology students are really getting much of a background there. But I tell you, as you kind of uh, think back on earlier opportunities in your career, you think, gosh, I remember looking through those Myers and, you know, you immediately <laughs> knew. You immediately knew yeah. someone had a dry eye problem by the quality yeah. of Myers or lack thereof. So, yeah, and I think, it's definitely. I, I think it's. 
Yeah, I think it's still a good tool to learn how to use because, you know, for that exact reason, if you look through that keratometry and you see that that Myers is, you know, irregular, then that sends a flag that, boy, I need to look into this a little further. Do they have, you know, an irregular corneal surface from keratoconus or is it irregular from dry eye disease? So I think it's still an important tool. You just cannot rely on it for your K reading. Right. Right. It's definitely, you know, used in collaboration with other newer technologies for sure. Mm-hmm. So right. how is how is osmolarity measured for that for the audience? If they're not using osmolarity in their practice right now, mm-hmm. what's the what's the technique like? Yeah, so the the tier lab um osmometer uses a so called lab on a chip. Um, at the tip of a handheld sampler. So the lab on chip is a single-use microchip that's embedded with gold electrodes that measure the electrical-like impedance of the tear fluid sample mm-hmm. um, in a tiny channel in the chip. Uh, so to perform the test, the clinician uses the handheld sampler to collect a very small sample of tear fluid, just 50 nanoliters. Um, and the clinician places the tip um, of the handheld device adjacent to the inferior lateral meniscus of the tear film. Uh, and then the mm-hmm. correct amount of fluid is absorbed into that microchip uh, by passive capillary action. Um, then we uh, dock the handheld uh, um, device into a reader. Um, and inside that handheld device, the gold-plated microchip measures the electrical impedance, and then the reader calculates and displays the osmolarity measurement in just a few seconds. Yeah, so, so it's you know, it's, straightforward. Yeah, it's, it's, it is pretty simple, pretty straightforward, um, and um, pretty quick, too. So yeah. once that device is docked, it, you know, again, it spits out that uh, reading, and uh, 360 milliosmoles or higher indicates dry eye disease or hyperosmolarity. Um, mm-hmm. I typically use 308 or higher um, mm-hmm. or a difference of 8 milliosmoles between the two eyes. It's also indicative of dry eye disease. Right. Uh, just a little frame of reference for the audience, 50 na- uh, nanoliters. That's a pretty small amount. From what I understand, that's about the size of a period at the end of a sentence. Which exactly. I think is yeah. is really important because if you mm-hmm. start gathering large samples, for one, that can cause some reflex tearing, change the osmolarity, uh, or some of our dry patients just don't have a lot to give. So that right. tiny little tear sample is usually pretty easy to obtain, at least in my clinical experience. Absolutely. So yeah, it's- um, tell me a little bit about the study design. Again, my favorite study of 2015. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> there were there were three sites uh, where subjects were prospectively recruited based on tear osmolarity. So mm-hmm. patients had to have a tear osmolarity greater than 360 milliosmoles in at least one eye to be categorized in the hyperosmolar group. And the second group had to have a tear osmolarity less than 308. So that was considered the normal group. Mm-hmm. Uh, subjects enrolled at the first visit had the tear osmolarity remeasured at a second visit uh, that could take place at any time within three weeks of the first visit, including the same day of the first visit. And there was just mm-hmm. a small percentage of patients in the study um, that had same-day measurements. 
Um, yeah. Subjects were recruited um, in a two-to-one ratio for a hyperosmolar uh, versus normal osmolar group. Uh, there were 100 eyes of 50 subjects in the hyperosmolar and 50 eyes of uh, 25 subjects in the normal group. And um, baseline K readings were measured, and then a second measurement was taken on the same instrument within that three-week period of time. So we compared the variability in average Ks, the calculated mm -hmm. corneal astigmatism using a vectored analysis, and the IOL sphere power calculations between the two groups. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so what were the results? Yeah, so our, in I, this I study, I know the answer to it, but, but it's so <laughs> provocative. So, but what yeah, what happened? So, what was the what was the endpoint? Yeah, so uh, we we saw that uh, in this study that a statistically significantly more subjects with in the hyperosmolar uh, group showed poor repeatability of K readings, and thus poor repeatability of IOL power calculations compared to subjects in the normal pure osmolarity group. So again, the hyperosmolar group had a significantly um, higher variability in K readings than the normal group. And the hyperosmolar group had um, a, a significantly higher percentage of eyes with one diopter or greater difference in the measured corneal astigmatism. So again, you know, a, a significantly higher percentage of patients in the hyperosmolar group had IOL power calculations of more than a half a diopter, which which is pretty significant, especially in patients that are you know choosing premium lenses. Uh, you know, with the patient expectations now, um, even a half a diopter can make a, a pretty significant difference. Now, it was Absolutely. it was a little surprising, yeah, that um, no differences. Uh, were seen when subjects were grouped by self-reported dry eye disease. So you can't rely on symptoms, um, so, which is, you know, why I think we should be doing tear osmolarity on uh, all our cataract patients. Right. So just to probably oversimplify it, is it mm -hmm. fair to say, as you said, the patients aren't necessarily going to come in and say, doctor, I have dry eye. They may not be previously diagnosed by their primary eye care provider in optometry, they arrive at the, the surgeon's office, they're not necessarily self-reporting. Without point-of-care testing, like osmolarity is, is witnessed in the study, you're not probably going to have that insight into the patient's ocular surface disease problems. And therefore, particularly, as I said, highlighted in the study, it showed that those dry patients were subject to having a significant um, you know, I won't say error exactly, but a significant change in their refractive outcome due to undiagnosed and untreated dry eye. Right. And that, and yeah. again, that's not uncommon. We know that dry eye disease is underdiagnosed. In uh, Billy Trattler's study, um, only 22% of um, those patients um, had a previous diagnosis of dry eye disease. Um, so the majority right. of patients had never been diagnosed or had no idea that they had dry eye disease. And I think and one then, theory is, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say one theory um, as to, you know, why a lot of patients are asymptomatic is, you know, the reduced sensitivity of the cornea from, you know, maybe chronic contact lens use or 
the damaging effects of um, keratitis sicca, um, you know, those factors may be contributing to the lack of symptoms um, despite um, ocular signs. Right, so and this, it's I, absolutely no, it's no surprise then when you look at the, the cataract patient population, you know, above mm -hmm. almost all others, and how they have so many risk factors, you know, aging, absolutely. hormone changes, the number of medications they're taking, you know, the list goes on and on, and yet, you know, a lot of us, and this is on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, in optometry and ophthalmology, have just kind of kicked the can down the road a little bit with cataract patients. And, you know, the in optometry, a lot of times we want that excellent outcome for our patients, but we think, oh, I'm referring to the surgeon. And then the surgeon has them and they think perhaps, you know, well, we're just ready to go with cataract surgery because they're sitting in my chair and that goes, goes on further. And then we have patients that, you know, have outcomes that could have been optimized. Right, right. And I, I can't tell you how nice it is to be able to have patients, you know, referred to my practice for a cataract evaluation, and they've already been optimized. You know, I think that, right. uh, you know, it, it really makes things flow nicer. Patients have better outcomes. Um, you know, I, I think patients understand once they have, have been diagnosed with dry eye disease and they realize how it can really affect their outcome, they don't usually mind delaying treatment until, you know, um, their, you know, surface is optimized. Right, right. So what options exist for surgeons in terms of performing, you know, osmolarity and, and keratometry testing, in your opinion? Well, um, you know, again, you know, errors in K readings um, rather than axial length measurement have become the number one reason why uh, we have um, refractive surprises. Uh, so right. basically garbage in, garbage out. Um, so sure. having those reliable K readings that are repeatable um, is so important uh, to accurately calculating IOL powers, again, especially uh, in today's society. Um, you know, so, you know, the ASCRS, um, you know, the uh, ocular surface disease algorithm that just recently came out recommends screening patients for dry eye disease and delaying surgery in patients that have what, what they considered visually significant ocular surface disease. So patients that had, you know, punctate staining or abnormal tear osmolarity or fl fluctuating vision, those, those are the patients that have visually significant ocular surface disease. Um, so, you know, again, they recommended um, treating that patient and then redoing their screening tests, their biometry, their repeat mm -hmm. uh, tear osmolarity, again, in two to four weeks. Right. And so, what do you think, you know, how do you think surgeons are going to feel about that? You know, it's sort of a, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek saying, you know, surgeons like to do surgery, right? So what, how, do you, how do you think that will impact their practice um, in terms of delaying two to four weeks? Well, you know, I think that, you know, with all the studies that have been, you know, that have come out, um, I think surgeons um, and, you know, optometrists are realizing how our outcomes can significantly be affected by ocular surface disease. And we all want optimal outcomes. So, right. you know, again, I think if we relay that message to our patients, 
patients don't mind waiting, um, you know, if, you know, just to get the best results possible. And I think surgeons realize the importance of that too. Well, that sort of begs the the question, and how do you talk to your patients about needing to delay surgery because their eyes are dry, especially perhaps if they're asymptomatic? You know, they think, well, I don't have dryness problems. Why am I waiting another two to four weeks for my surgery? (laughs) Right. Um, Well, you know, I think that, um, you know, again, I think that if you just, you know, explain to patients that they have dry eye disease, and dry eye disease can affect the measurements that we use to determine what strength implant to put in. Um, you know, again, patients realize that the importance of that. And many times if they have a, an abnormal tear osmolarity or if they have, you know, atrophy in the meibomian glands, you can actually show patients evidence, especially asymptomatic patients, you know, you know, the abnormal tear osmolarity, showing them what normal is versus what abnormal is because you know, patients love to see their numbers. They love to see what their, you know, um, A1C is, if they're diabetic, mm-hmm. or they love to see their cholesterol levels. So this is just mm-hmm. another um, lab test that, you know, patients can objectively look at to, you know, say, oh, yeah, you're right. I, you know, this is not normal. Um, and like I said, another example is showing them their, you know, biography if they have atrophy, showing them what normal looks like versus what, you know, what they may look like. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, showing them, you know, kind of sharing with them and educating them, you know, kind of helps them to understand the importance of uh, delaying surgery. Right, right. You know, as you sort of described, my biography of pictures definitely worth a thousand words and it gives the patient mm-hmm. a frame of reference. But I think that point of care testing, and I think you really nailed it when you said that, you know, referenced uh, A1C and cholesterol, patients love numbers. They may not know what they mean. They may need background and some foundational explanation for what it means, but they love a good number to chew on. And in eye care, particularly dry eye, I mean, osmolarity is is the number right now. So um, it's it's something that they can really wrap their minds around. And we have one shot on goal. So patients appreciate the fact that you're trying to maximize their results. Right. You're exactly right. This is a, this is a one-shot opportunity. And, and you want to get it, you know, balanced between the two eyes. And sometimes, you know, you do your, your best surgery and the right eye turns out great. And then the left eye comes in and it's, if it's off now by half to after a diopter, that's even worse in my estimation, you know, having Absolutely. that inequality between the two eyes. Because twofold, number one, now they have frame of reference between the two eyes and think, wait a minute, why mm-hmm. isn't OS as good as OD? <laughs> And then just secondly, from a refractive perspective, having that little in an ISO between the two eyes is really off-putting to a lot of patients. So, you know, I think, I think it couldn't be more important uh, what you're doing and what your study shows. Absolutely. Well, I really sincerely appreciate your time. Uh, we've learned so much today about the, really the necessity of point-of-care testing and osmolarity in preoperative cataract patients and what the impact can be, which is a huge impact. I appreciate you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Whitney. I appreciate it. I'm a, I'm a fan of your podcast. I've picked up several pearls listening to them here and there. So thank you for what you guys do. Absolutely. Thanks so much. You're and join welcome. us again I'm next gonna... time for the Dry Eye Coach podcast series. We will have some more coming up soon. 
So we look forward to you joining us. Thank you.